0: Morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, congratulations. Uh, you made it to 2022. Look at you. You got to church. It's negative 400 outside, and uh, you made it. I'm so proud of you. Okay. Uh, this morning, we are starting a brand new series uh, for three weeks called Exiles, Pilgrims, and ambassadors, and we're going to spend three weeks, and I think this is a really important series, I've been thinking about doing this for a long time, just talking about each of these three identities, we'll do one per week, and how they're really important to us understanding our sort of unique place in the world around us. And I think this is critical, especially as the religious landscape in America is changing so quickly. So if we get in our time machine, and we go back to 1980. Uh, what you would find is not only a really cool fashion, but you would also find that a massive portion of Americans had what we might call an inherited faith. So in other words, they went to the Methodist church in town or the Lutheran church or the Presbyterian church or you name it. But the only reason they went is because, well, that's like what their parents did and that's what their grandparents did. They had an inherited faith. And in those days, It was actually socially, at times, even economically advantageous to be in church because you looked like a good community member and good standing if you were in church. You even made business contacts at church. People went to church for those reasons, and you were kind of, in a sense, especially in rural communities, looked at odd as odd if you weren't in church. Now, there's always been a second group of churchgoers in America And that group we won't call the inherited faith people. Let's call them the people of chosen faith. These are the people, they believe in God's word. They have a personal saving relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. And pollsters and sociologists have consistently said, really for the last 50, 60 years now, that that group of Americans has always made up right around 20% of the population. So in 1980, it was about 20% of the population. In 2022, it's still unchanged, about 20% Twenty percent of the population, but where 1980 was so different than 2022 was back then, you still had this massive group of people who just had inherited faith, and so they too had traditional views of a marriage. They had Christian views, kind of on on parenting, on uh, sex, morality, all sorts of different things, and they held these particular views. Not because they were really passionate about the Bible and doctrine and all those things, but because, well, that's kind of like what their parents believed and their grandparents believed, and it's still what the majority of the culture believed at the time. However, today, in 2022, this once huge section of America that had just inherited faith, and they went to church every week, has basically disappeared according to most pollsters. And what's happened is over time, over the decades, people realized, okay, it actually isn't all that advantageous to be in church anymore. It may be even a disadvantage to me socially. And for many of them, it was like their church didn't even teach that the Bible was true anyway. So what's the point of being in church? And so that group has sort of ceased to exist. And because this massive group of people with inherited faith has all but disappeared in our country, what's happened is there's no longer this bubble of protection. You may call it a cultural majority surrounding or protecting those with chosen true faith in Jesus Christ. And because that group of people is gone, here's what's happening right in front of our very eyes in this country. While followers of Christ 40 years ago and actually I would even say 20 years ago, we're met with apathy by outsiders, by non-Christians. Today, instead of being met with apathy, more and more Christians are met with antagonism. And so we're on this journey, this transitionary journey from apathy to antagonism. So 40 years ago on college campuses, most Christians, true believers, followers of Jesus, were met with eye rolls. Today, Passionate believers of Jesus on college campuses are told they can't choose who their leader of their club is or they can't rent this room or they may not even be able to meet in the years to come because of the beliefs that they hold on a marriage or identity or faith are seen as bigoted or dangerous. Now listen, nobody in America 40 years ago thought Christians were dangerous. Lame, maybe. Dangerous? No, and so in this transition that's happening from apathy to antagonism, it is so critical, my friends, that we understand our role as Christians in society, and my fear is that a lot of Christians in America aren't ready for this transition and they don't biblically understand who we are as Christians within the broader culture. And so that's what we want to do in the series. We want to dive into what does the scripture teach About our identity within the culture. And this morning we're gonna do that by looking at our Christian identity as exiles. So let's open up the Word of God together and let's look at it. There's a Bible under every chair in front of you. Uh, We're gonna camp out a lot in this scripture today. We're gonna bring a lot from it. So I want you to just keep it open. Uh, We're gonna be on page 829 in the letter of 1 Peter. And Peter's gonna talk to us about this. Peter, if you don't know who he is, he's one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he's writing a book to some of the early, or a letter, I should say, to some of the early Christians. And our passage is in chapter two. Uh, You'll find it on 829, uh, right under the heading that says, "'Living Godly Lives in a Pagan Society.'" Uh, pagan is just, they were the people that they didn't follow Jesus. They bowed down to idols and whatever they, their hearts and desires wanted to do. And So this is going to be perfect, okay? So 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we're going to do 11 through 17 today. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves." Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Okay. This is a passage about how we live as Christians as exiles. Now, before I go any further, it's super important that I define uh, what the Bible means by the word exile because in modern day we use it differently, actually. So, you know today if you use the word exile or you see it in the news somewhere we kind of use it to describe maybe a political dissident who's been exiled sent away to a different country somewhere uh, that's not exactly how the bible uses the word exile in ancient times an exile uh, was a person who had been taken away to another land and was living in that land until one day hopefully they could return to their homeland uh, the most prominent example of that in scripture is probably in the old testament the jews are exiled, they're taken away by King Nebuchadnezzar out of their land of Jerusalem to Babylon and they live as exiles in Babylon for 70 years until they one day can return home to Jerusalem. Uh, The closest example we have today to what the New Testament means by the word exile uh, would be like uh, someone who's living in the United States, uh, but they have their green card. And just so I can kind of reference a consistent example this morning, okay, that would be like someone who's left, uh, say, Ethiopia uh, because of war, and they've come to the United States via a green card. And so they live here, they can work here, they can stay here, but their true home is back in Ethiopia. That's where their heart is. That's where they long to be. And so they are, in America, they are in the New Testament sense of the word, an exile here. Does that make sense? That's that's what Peter is talking about when he says Christians are exiles in their culture. And that's really his first point of how we should live as an exile. So I'm going to throw on the screen here for you, uh, we're going to get to three points today of how you can live as an exile. And so here's number one. Number one is this, it's remember, and I encourage you to write this down. It'll help even if you write it down, you throw it away on your way out of here, you're going to remember it better. So remember that this world is not your true home. Now, I'm going to stay just a few minutes on this, and we're going to dive a lot deeper into that next week when we talk about our identity as pilgrims. But for now, if you've got the Bible open still, would you glance over to the left-hand page in the upper left, the very beginning of this letter, 1 Peter. What does the first verse say? Peter addresses the people, and he says, "To gods gods-elect exiles scattered throughout. Okay, what's fascinating is he's writing this letter to Christians who are actually living in their own countries. They're not foreigners in terms of their nationality, but he's saying, because you're a Christian, you're living like a spiritual exile. The culture that you live in right now is not your permanent home. This world is not like heaven, right? It isn't. This world that we live in, this culture that we live in is broken. It is off in so many ways. And so as a Christian, as you interact with the culture around you, you should feel like an exile in a different country, in a different culture. You should feel like this world isn't your home. Or as, first, or as Peter says in, in, in verse 11, he says, like you're a foreigner here. Now, Peter It says, you're going to feel like an exile. You should live as an exile. And then he gives actual concrete advice on how you can live, think, and act as an exile. So here's the second point of how we can live as an exile. Number two, you want to surprise those around you with your holy life and good deeds. Surprise those around you with your holy life and good deeds. This is verses 11 and 12. And then he goes into it back again a little bit in 15. So let's look at those again. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain, to avoid from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then if you jump to 15, he also says, for it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So, As exiles in this strange land, you want to live such good lives that people eventually would look at you and they would glorify God. They would come to Christ because of what they're seeing in your life. Now notice, Peter doesn't say, okay, they're going to look at your life and they're going to say, oh, she is so amazing. I love everything about her. I just want to become a Christian. What does he say? Look at verse 12. Do you have it? He says, though they accuse you of doing wrong, Okay, so what Peter is saying is it's not that easy. People, if you're in exile and you're living, you're living your faith out, you're not living your faith at a distance like we've been talking about lately, but you're living your faith out, people in this culture, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, you know what? Your views on life are actually, I think they're intolerant. I think they're antiquated. They are all sorts of wrong to me, but I cannot figure out your life because I look at your life and you are such a nice person. And you are so generous and you live with so much integrity and and forgiveness. And I just look at you and I go, I just don't, I, oh, that's verse 15, right? What does Peter, Peter say? Verse 15, that your good lives essentially ought to silence people and leave them speechless. That they would look at you and go, but I, hmm, that's, that's what living as an exile should look like. So let me put number two back on the screen, and we'll, we'll kind of walk through this a little bit more. So you're surprising. You're leaving people speechless because of, number one, your holy life and your good deeds. Now, one of these is more internal in how you live, and that's the holy life, and the other is external. So let's start with the internal part of being an exile. This is verse 11, where he says, okay, as a Christian, you need to abstain. You're avoiding all of the sinful desires that are coming up in your heart. Obviously, we're going to sin every day, but your goal is to avoid that, right? As Christians, we're to live lives of purity in how we speak, in what we watch, in our relationships. We're to live lives of purity in our integrity, right? In our views and practice of sex. And if we do that, like in exile, we're going to live really differently, than the culture around us. They're gonna look at us and go, okay, that's really, that's, that's really different. But honestly, let me tell you something. As time goes by in our culture, and our culture gets more and more confused, your holy life is actually gonna look more and more like a lighthouse in a storm of confusion. Now, let me give you an interesting example of this. Uh, two weeks ago, I was watching uh, Ben Pierce's podcast. Uh, ben Pierce is a, a, a missionary and an author. He's spoken here many, many times. And he was interviewing uh, one of my favorite pastors, Matt Chandler. And uh, Chandler was telling Ben Pierce and his brother uh, about how uh, David Brooks, who's a famous author and he's a columnist for the New York Times, a very, very famous writer in America right now, uh, very recently gave his life to Christ and he became a Christian, which is amazing. And uh, Matt Chandler asked this famous columnist for the New York Times, how did you become a Christian? Like, what happened? And this is what David Brooks said. Look at this. Here's what he said. He said, when I saw the moral beauty, that's the consistent holiness, the way of life, in the lives of my Christian friends, it drew me in. Okay, that is so important for the next 10 years of being a Christian in America because we live in a culture that is changing its morals faster than anyone could have ever imagined, and many of those morals grow darker by the minute. And so the fact that you, in the midst of this evolving worldview that's changing every single month, and people are like, oh, we're supposed to believe that now? The fact that you are staying consistent not only in what you believe, but in how you live, that you're staying consistent in your marriage. You're faithful to your spouse. You continue to live and work with integrity in your workplace. The light of how you live your consistent life is only gonna shine brighter in the future. And that's what David Brooks is saying. He's like, the world around us is chaos. Nobody even can consistently hold on to the same thing. And I'm looking at these Christians going, there's something different here. And it's moral beauty that he's drawn to. Okay, so Peter says, as exiles, we are to surprise people, number one, with our holy life, and then also our good deeds. This is more of the external side of it. And so we are to treat the people around us, the community around us, with love and good deeds, even though that they accuse us of doing wrong, that we would continually love and serve them. Now, I'm, I made a continuum here uh, to help explain this because I think there's a lot of tension in this. So let's, let's throw this up on the screen. So where you want to be biblically, I feel like I'm showing love to this. Okay, where you want to be biblically is you want to be in exile, right? You want to be in the middle. But if you don't do both of those things that Peter is saying exiles do, holy life and good deeds you're gonna to drift to one of these sides inevitably. So I'll give you an example of the first drift to the left. There are many, many people out there and they even claim the name of Christ. They say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. But they do not at all abstain from sinful desires. They just follow their heart and the passion of their lust, and they look just like everybody else in the culture around them. They're not living like an exile. They've completely assimilated into the culture. They look just like everybody else. Again, okay, imagine you're from Ethiopia, right? And you're here on a green card. If someone is doing that, they're going to look very differently than a lot of you. There's a few people in our church from East Africa, and so they're maybe not as different. But for most of you, I suspect, someone who's here as an exile from Ethiopia there's gonna be a difference, right, in how they live, in a language, and food, and customs. And even though they're here for a while, they're gonna hold on to a lot of their culture because their first love is Ethiopia. And their hope is that they can go back there someday. They're not here to assimilate. And Christians were not here to assimilate into the culture. This is not our final home. We are to be holy as God is holy. But we also can't make the opposite mistake And withdraw. And I see this happening a ton. There are Christians, and they look out in the world right now, and they look and they go, oh my word, this world is going down. It is messed up. It is depraved. And so what do we do? We say, I don't want anything to do with that. And we completely withdraw out of it to the point that even though we're Christians, we have no meaningful relationships with non-Christians. But I know a lot of people that are in their camp and they look at their own life and they go, you know what, I'm really faithful to the Lord, I am holy, I'm doing the right thing. And yet this is yet another passage where if you're in that camp and you have no meaningful relationships with non-Christians, you are actually being disobedient to what God is calling you to. Because you can't obey this. Because this passage is saying, you ought to have non-Christians around you that can look at your life and glorify God because of what they're seeing. But if there's no one around you, then how can they do that? So we look, you can see this in the persecuted church. A good example is also the early church. The early church of the first few centuries grew exponentially, in part because they lived so uniquely in terms of their personal morality. People looked at them and said, this is so different, your your marriages and how you live and how you treat each other, but also because of their good deeds, right? Right? It was the Christians. They were the ones that took in the abandoned babies, the little baby girls that nobody wanted, right? The Christians were the ones that showed mercy to the slaves. They cared for the sick and dying when nobody else would. And so it was their holiness and their good deeds that so shocked and surprised the Romans that it eventually softened their hearts and the whole empire eventually turns to Christ. And so we find balance on this chart right? We cannot assimilate and look like the culture, but we also cannot withdraw. We are exiles. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Okay. And then Peter, he gives us another important point that if we're going to be exiles, there's another tension that's really hard to manage. But if we're going to be exiles, we've got to manage it. And that's verses 13 and 14, and then also 17. So let's, let's read those again. Peter says, submit yourselves, For the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And then if you jump to 17, he says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay, and this is the last point on how to live as an exile in a culture that looks really different than the Christian faith. Number three is honor human authorities. Okay, first of all, we've got to think about the context in which Peter is writing this in history. This is during the Roman Empire. Uh, The emperor Nero is in charge of the Roman Empire. Nero is 100% antagonistic towards Christians. Nero literally fed Christians to lions. And so that's the context into which Peter pens, or ink or whatever he's using, right, honor the emperor submit to authorities show respect to everyone now of course there's a line here acts chapter five is a good example of this we are to honor and show respect to everyone but if someone in authority would ask you to do something where well, you have to do something that goes against what god's word says we always follow god but in the midst of it we uh, the other things we submit we honor we show respect proper respect and why is that It's it's right in here. So look at verse 13. Peter writes, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Okay, so we show honor, we show respect to authorities for the Lord's sake. Here's what's happening. Peter is so concerned about the witness of the early church He's so concerned that all these people that are around these new believers, that they would see the true heart of Christian believers. Because if Christian believers are constantly disrespecting the authorities, or they're trying to rise up against the authorities, then the onlookers inevitably are going to think that, okay, I get it, the Christians, their goal is to overthrow Rome. Their goal is to get political power. And so Peter's saying, okay, for the Lord's sake, as exiles here, Seek first the kingdom of God. And here, too, there is a continuum because this is a hard tension to manage. So let me show you this. So on the one hand, on this continuum, we have, uh, this is, you could call this maybe a social continuum. How do you interact with your neighbors, friends, and people around you? This is a political continuum that Peter gives us. And really, there's a tension here. If Christians give all of their time and all of their heart to gain political power people will see that as our main objective. So if all you post about online, or if all you talk about with your friends is politics, then your non-believing friends will think, oh, that's that's the heart of a Christian, that's what they're about. If you walk around wearing a Let's Go Brandon shirt, then you will lose your witness for Christ. Why is that? It's because you're not only confusing people by, okay, this is what I'm really most passionate about, but by speaking in a disrespectful manner. Because that's exactly what Peter is talking about. When he says submitting, honoring, respecting authorities, when we do that, you end up actually hurting your ability to talk about Jesus Christ, which is the most important mission here on earth. You know what? I think the devil is using sort of the American drift this way to his great advantage in this country right now. Because as we sort of drift upwards, many of us, there are so many non-believers around us. And honestly, they don't understand us. They don't get what Christianity is really about. Just like you wouldn't really understand someone who had just moved to this country and their culture is really different. You'd go, I don't, I don't really understand. They don't understand us. And because they don't understand us, there are so many people who are looking at Christians right now in America and going, oh, okay. I, I, I think they are most primarily concerned with political power. Here's another way to think of it. Those who never read the Bible will still read our lives. And from our lives, they're going to guess what the Bible is about. And there are way too many nonbelievers in this country right now that are guessing incorrectly, but they're guessing, okay, Christianity is most concerned with political power. And it's because they're not handling this real tension well as exiles. Now, again, I say this all the time here. The answer is not complete disengagement with politics. By the way, these tensions, they're just kind of hard, right? And maybe you're going to leave here today and go like, like, where do I go, though? Like, what's too much assimilation? What's too much withdrawal? Like, well, how do I do politics then? And listen, I don't want you to leave here every week and go, and just be stuck. This is why we have house groups why 80% of our people are in Christian community. Because we want you to get in a group on a Sunday night or a Tuesday night or a Thursday night and get across other Christians. Open the word again and go, okay, but here's my question. What does this mean for me at work? Because here's my situation. We want other Christians to speak into your life and help you apply that. Does that make sense? You can't do this alone. You can't figure out hard tensions alone. Christian community manners, matters, and you should have good manners. Okay, but you can't, you can't drift all the way to disengagement, right? Because that doesn't work either. The answer to this is not to become Amish, okay? It isn't, and you can laugh all you want. They're not going to watch this. Um, <laughs> when, when, when the Jews were first put in exile in Babylon, the prophet, sorry, I don't know where they came from. <laughs> The, the prophet Jeremiah, he writes to them, this is the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah, and this is what he says to the exiles, Jeremiah 29. He says, also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, that's Babylon, which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we can't disengage. Okay, again, if somebody comes here from Ethiopia, and they're on a green card, and let's say they get, they get hired at a growing new business in Blaine they're going to want Blaine to do well. They're going to care about the success of the city, maybe even volunteer to be on the board of a nonprofit. But at the end of the day, they're still exiles. Their true heart is in Ethiopia. That's their first love. I think of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible. Look at their political engagement. They served in a foreign court. They served a foreign king as exiles. But when opportunity came up for them to return to their homeland, they jumped at it because their heart was first and foremost for God. And that's where we want our hearts to be. That we, Renovation Church, that we would be a people that put God first. And in doing so, that's gonna make us look like exiles, maybe more often than not. Now you're gonna feel like an exile. But if we do that and we put God first, people are gonna look at your life and you know what they're gonna see? They're gonna see God. Not just another person that looks like everybody else. Live as an exile. Let me pray. Lord, teach us to do this. It is, uh, it is not easy, especially in our changing culture, to be different, to live differently. But Lord, we trust that's how people will see you. That's what your word tells us. And so give us the boldness, the faith to actually be consistent and to manage those tensions and to live as exiles in this changing culture. So in your name we pray, amen.